Hi, everybody. I'm Marty, and I'm the dumbest motherfucker out here talking about the smartest sports movie. This is Bull Durham, starring Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, and Tim Robbins. You may not be religious, but there's plenty of room for you in the Church of Baseball. Oh, Jesus Christ. A bunch of dice just fell out of my bag. Fuck. What do you believe in that? Well, I believe in the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last for three days. Oh, my. After 12 years in the minor leagues, I don't try out. Besides, uh... I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. Sometimes love can explain. Have you ever been tired of Come on, fire one in here. This is ridiculous. I'm a professional. It still remains a mystery to me. That's hot. Why one surrenders and the other runs away? But it's true. The rose goes in the front, big guy. Dare you to stay out of my bed? You are messing with my private life. By the numbers, Bull Durham was released June fifteenth, nineteen eighty-eight, on a approximately nine million dollar budget, and it had a five million opening weekend. Went on to go. 50 million in USA and Canada, which is roughly 113 million adjusted again. But again, the size of the movie going populous in the movie industry or the the theater, movie theater industry was smaller, prices were less. So that number is not necessarily one to one. It's a 1988 number adjusted for inflation, right? There is no Bull Durham in 3D that costs $20 a ticket. So Bull Durham comes as clocks in at 148 minutes currently sitting at 7.0 on IMDb, a hot 97% on Rotten Tomatoes with an 82% audience score because people are fucking losers, and a 73 on Metacritic. Or is it a 7.3? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, 73 on Metacritic, 8.0 audience on Metacritic. That makes way more sense. Thanks, handwriting. It's always difficult to lay the entirety of the success of a movie on one person. And in viewing this movie with no context, you would be hard-pressed to do exactly that because Costner, Sarandon, and Robbins all play their parts picture-perfectly. And I feel that Sarandon got snubbed. She, she was so good in this role. But with all the context in the world, it would be, I think, pretty obvious that the, the, the source of the success of this movie rested on writer-director Ron Shelton's shoulders. This movie isn't autobiographical for Shelton, but it is drawn from his life. He was a minor leaguer in the Orioles system for about four years. He was a ball player in high school, and ball is life, as the kids say. He has an authenticity to the point where when he wants to cast a baseball player, he'll leave a baseball within reach of where they're sitting. A baseball player will invariably pick up the ball and, for lack of a better word, feel it up. I keep baseball I keep baseballs near my desk to do exactly this. And they're synthetic baseballs and they're they don't feel the same, but I didn't see any leather baseballs online that were affordable, so I I, I made do. 
you'd think that a minor league baseball player wouldn't be the one to be a writer, director, uh, major motion picture filmmaker type. But Shelton was an English major in college and a lifelong movie fan. When he was a kid, he would sneak into any movie just to say that he snuck in. But in staring at the screen for so long, the screen stared into him. Even when he was in the minors, he would go see a movie every day once he got into town. It didn't matter what it was. He was also a Vietnam War protester in college, even while he was still playing baseball at the college level. After his minor league career, he even went back to Arizona State and got an MFA with, uh, if my memory serves, is a, a specialization or a focus in sculpture. And yes, I'm going somewhere with this. If you're playing the drinking game, get ready. <laughs> oh, uh, my half-assed theory is that the character of Skip Kirk in the novella Hearts in Atlantis in the book Hearts in Atlantis by Stephen King was inspired, at least in part, by Ron Shelton. Hear me out. Skip was a poet at heart, a talented baseball player who began protesting the war and creating sculptures to burn in effigy, who went on to have a successful artistic career. Skip is the name of the manager of the Durham Bulls in this movie. Shelton is clearly a poet, as we've seen. I hope you've seen the movie. Spoilers ahead. Anyway. He is, or, or was, a sculptor. Stephen King loves baseball and has more than likely seen Bull Durham. Kevin Costner gave Shelton the nickname Cujo when he got really aggressive with an overstepping producer named Mark Berg during the production. I think it's a thing. I think this is a thing. You may not agree with me, but I will live with this completely harmless, stupid little theory. Shelton didn't only bring his experience to the screenplay of the movie, he figuratively brought it to the direction as well. In terms of technicality, Shelton is quoted to have said, this isn't a film about photography or elegance. I don't want to say that it shows, because that makes it sound like I think the movie's ugly, but it definitely displays what Shelton calls minor league lighting to further impress upon the viewer the lack of, um, or the absence, I guess, of luxury of the minor leagues. There are some new kind of camera moves and placements with a, especially a handheld camera going into the batter's box with Crash Davis or, or standing on the mound with Nuke Lelouch. The movie is, is not devoid of artistry, even in the visual sense at all, but it is certainly not ostentatious about it. I'm not going to call this production minor league, but uh, it maybe had more in common with an indie movie than it did with a, a major studio motion picture. They only built one set, and it was the locker room, which was built in a tobacco warehouse across the street from the ballpark in Durham, North Carolina. They did film at the Durham Bulls' home field. Baseball players are known as the Boys of Summer, but unfortunately, this movie was filmed during a cold, cold fall. There are several scenes, usually at night, where the field lights are on, and you can see the breath of everyone on screen. They're sprayed up with fake sweat and, and what have you, and are, they're just out there freezing in like 30-degree like weather. Interestingly enough, uh, the cliché scene was the first scene that was shot on the movie. Shelton doesn't shoot in sequence, as, as most don't, for obvious reasons. So that was just the first scene in the whole movie. The bus was the first stuff that was shot. Uh, 
Tim Robbins and Kevin Costner had just, they'd had to jump in there and make it happen. And, and they do. I'm not going to go into the careers of these three major actors because you, you honestly should know. And if you don't, look them up. But the casting was spot on. Uh, Kevin Costner didn't read for the part, I don't think, but he did literally go to the batting cages and, and throw some balls around with Ron Shelton for a few hours. Uh, Costner, by the way, uh, a hell of a ball player. Switch hitter from high school who played intramural at the college level, and, and he played ball in, in Southern California, I believe, which is um, it's kind of like playing high school ball in South Florida. Like, it's, it's intense. So he's got it. He's, he's a ball player. He doesn't have the look of a modern professional baseball player because we know what they look like now, and they're all fucking jacked nowadays. But he's got the walk and he's got the talk. He did go yard twice during the filming of this movie and apparently prefers to bat lefty. Unusual, you know, but okay. He, he has that, like, um, lived in, but, but still being handsome kind of thing going on. He's, he, the, the bomber jacket that he wears in the movie is, is literally Ron Shelton's jacket that the, the, war, the costumer took off of Ron Shelton and put directly on Kevin Costner and... Um, it's that look that, uh, again, not elegance and not luxury, but dignity and beauty in a way that, uh, that really makes the look of Crash Davis and the icons of this movie. Tim Robbins, on the other hand, plays a character completely unlike himself. Robbins is a really uh, serious guy who is also kind of spaced out and out there, you know? Nuke is this hopped-up, power-mad young ball player who's cocky but hasn't earned it yet. He plays so goofy and dumb and charming, and it is delightful. Robbins uh, did play some third base back in the day, and there's a shot where he's tossing a ball around the field before a game starts, and, and he's totally got a normal throw and catch, which is great. His pitching motion is, is definitely a choice. Uh, he even stated it that he started breathing through his eyelids uh, as the movie uh, dictates and doing his own uh, version of the, the Fernando Valenzuela kind of exaggerated and wild motion. And, and this is a point that many people mm, may have seemed to have missed. And I'm not going to say that Tim Robbins' uh, uh, pitching motion is the most accurate in the world. I don't think that he really fully does the rock and the sit and, and all that. He's not fully using his legs. I don't think that he was throwing uh, gas quite like Sheen was in Major League, but he's he's definitely playing a part. He is acting. If he was actually pitching, he would not likely pitch in, in with that motion, specifically. Susan Sarandon had a more difficult time getting in the movie. Shelton wanted her for the movie, no doubt, but the studio was not thrilled with her age, so she had to put on a tight dress and impress some of these executive assholes after flying over from Italy on her dime to read for the part. I get the hustle and I commend her for it, but, but that shit pisses me off. Like she is so absolutely wonderful in her performance as, as Annie in this movie that I begin to think that I, I thought she was like Annie all the time and on her regular days, you know, she disappears into the character and, and really is, the almost the protagonist of the movie in, in, in a lot of ways. If you want to talk about somebody who drives the movie, uh, Annie, Annie's really up there. Even if she has 
less screen time than Costner and probably Robbins. And aside from Annie's narration, we do get a bit of music in this one. There is a no more perfect song for a baseball movie than Center Field by John Fogerty. Fogerty, very obviously of Credence Clearwater Revival, started a solo career and went on to, to make some good music. Stephen King even mentions Fogerty's solo career in the book It, which was set in 1985. So this might be the, the Fogerty sense. Centerfield, the song, has, has gusto, it has presence. It doesn't hurt that it starts a little bit like La Bamba and, and keeps on with a super accessible, uncomplicated 4-4 pattern for bass and drums with a lot of little fills on guitar uh, panned to either channel. And, and like an 808 hand clap, you, you gotta have that 808. But even uh, even the cars were doing this, you know. Uh, this was like new wave for country music almost, or folk music. Impressively, Fogarty played every instrument on the recording of, of the album, and the album, also titled Centerfield, is a certified double platinum. The song Centerfield in the movie gets a nice baseball montage to go along with it. Another song that stuck out on the mix, uh, to me, I, and I know because I like it, is Only a Memory by the Smithereens. This uh, plays, I think, when Nuke is introduced, or, or just about when Nuke is introduced, uh, maybe slightly afterwards. But the Smithereens have this super-duper clean, ultra, post-post-punk that is almost like if Rockabilly was a Pokemon and evolved twice. It's jangly-wangly, but with that super-locked-in, almost New Order drum pattern. And before I get tweets saying that I'm, I'm totally incorrect, I'll, I'll point out that New Order was already extant at this time, and, and also, I'm not terribly concerned with being wrong in matters of music. It happens. We're all adults here. The, the song plays for the, the quickest of seconds, but I, I caught it instantly, because it is a song that I do like. And if you've got your drinking card, uh, drinking game card ready again, there is Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley in the comments, and that is the first needle drop in the movie, and it also kicks off my favorite movie, American Graffiti. And if you are playing the drinking game, please play responsibly. But I can already let you know that this won't be the last call. Or I, I don't think it will be. We'll see. It is such a great song to start something out with. It is anachronistic in this case since it's from another time. However, I think it furthers the quaint and lived-in environment of an old minor league ballpark. And then, you know, more on that in a minute, but we'll have another song that everybody probably recognizes, but many people may not realize is a thing. And uh, Annie has a penchant for Edith Piaf and listens to two songs by her in this movie, by my count. The more interesting one is called, and, and please forgive my pronunciation, uh, Non je ne regrette rien, which translates to No, I don't regret a thing. This song is played as Annie says that a man would come calling, but that it would be the wrong man. This is towards the end of the movie. This is the beginning of the end of her dalliance with the youthful and goofy Nuke Lelouch, who gets her to open the door by saying, I know you're here. I can hear that crazy Mexican singer you like, which is fantastic. Uh, he, is, he is so, so charming and, and being an idiot in this movie. Uh, the second Edith Piaf song is actually played twice in the movie, when she brings Nuke and Crash over to her house on the outset, and when she breaks up with Nuke. It is uh, La Vie en Rose, or La Vie en Rose, 
I don't know, bad pronunciation. Everyone knows this song. It translates roughly to Life in Happy Times or Life in Happy Hues. And it is uh, per perhaps a, a romantic look back at life. And I can get that. I like it. So interestingly enough, uh, she, you know, maybe represents that in the beginning as like, ah, uh, yes, the baseball season of, of years past were so great. Maybe this one will be too. And then at the end of the movie, she's breaking up with, with Nuke. It's, it's very on the nose, like, ah, yes, our time together, Nuke, was so great. But also her life, because her life is changing in a big way. And I'm having a, a romantic look, not a sexual, just romantic look back at this movie. And, and it's got the same vibe. Definitely uh, made more popular in recent years by um, Marion Cotillard's performance as Edith Piaf in the movie called Lavian Rose, which is, in my theory, the movie that Chris Nolan fell asleep watching when he thought up the concept for Inception, and that's why the bwah is actually the song. Lavian Rose just slowed down a lot because that's how characters in sleep experience time in, in real time in the movie. It's a whole thing. Anyway, so Bull Durham was released when Major League was in some state of pre-production, and I'm, I'm not going to check that fact. But it does have a similar approach to music. There is the, the gospel organ motif that keeps coming back, and it is heavily featured in the Church of Baseball monologue. There are some sound-alikes. Not only does Centerfield start a little bit like La Bamba, but the track Middle of Nowhere by House of Shock reminds me a lot of Back on the Chain Gang. <laughs> back on the Chain Gang reminds me a lot of Back on the Chain Gang by The Pretenders. House of Shock was a project led by the Go-Go's drummer, Gina Shock, and uh, once I read that, I was just like, yeah, yeah, that's obvious. I'm an idiot. But we also get Stevie Ray Vaughan, again featured in Major League Two, on the track All Night Dance with uh, saxophonist Benny Wallace. I'm not anti-sax, but I don't think that the song highlights the instrument. Jeff Baxter of Steely Dam fame has a track called Baseball Boogie that does not seem to exist outside of the print of this movie. Joe Cocker has a track called When a Woman Loves a Man that you hear uh, up top in the trailer, and I had to cut that shit down to size because it becomes a music video more than a theatrical trailer. Yeah, I would, I would, have, I would have been pissed had I seen that trailer before watching the movie. There are several other tracks on here that'll probably resonate a lot more with an older crowd, but I'll point out that the happy-go-lucky upbeat song by Los Lobos called I Got Loaded, which started out uh, as the temp music for the run through the sprinkler scene, stayed as the actual production music for the run through the sprinkler scene. And if you didn't know, a, a movie production may not have final music until very late in production. They use temp music tracks to get the feeling and the vibe for the editing process. There's a whole thing about how a lot of orchestrated soundtracks sound like Gladiator because productions use the Gladiator score as their temp music, and the director likes it so much they say, make it sound like that. There's a whole thing about, about falling in love with your temp music that's, you know, maybe bad, but in this case, I, I think I feel really good about it since they didn't even go for a sound alike. They just straight up used it. And I, I was thinking about how to talk about this movie. There is a lot to talk about. I'm going to forego the part where I dig into every minor character and dissect their careers and lives and, you know, spiritual beliefs or whatever. I'm going to actually take uh, 
10 scenes maybe. And and that's a huge number. So it'll, it'll probably be less than 10. And I'm going to control some territory that way. If I spend five minutes talking about every scene, that's almost an hour more than whatever we're at now. There are precious few wasted moments in this movie, but I, I had to pick and choose. There are a lot of really great scenes, but then there are, are some scenes, right? If you know what I mean. So let's get into it. Oh, and a thousand percent spoilers. Like, fuck. Like, watch the movie. This movie is, is a movie that deserves the watch, honestly. So that we can, we can talk, we can dish. I believe in the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isidore Duncan. I know things. For instance, there are 108 beads in a Catholic rosary and there are 108 stitches in a baseball. When I learned that, I gave Jesus a chance. But it just didn't work out between us. The Lord laid too much guilt on me. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball, and it's never born, <laughs> which makes it like sex. There's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just gotta relax and concentrate. Besides, I'd never sleep with a player hitting under 250, well, unless he had a lot of RBIs or was a great glove man up the middle. You see, there's a certain amount of life wisdom I give these boys. I can expand their minds. Sometimes when I've got a ball player alone, I'll just read Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman to him. And the guys are so sweet, they always stay and listen. Of course, a guy will listen to anything if he thinks it's foreplay. I make them feel confident, and they make me feel safe and pretty. Of course, what I give them lasts a lifetime. But they give me last 142 games. Sometimes it seems like a bad trade. But bad trades are part of baseball. I mean, who can forget Frank Robinson for Milk Pappas, for God's sake? It's a long season, and you gotta trust it. I've tried them all I really have, and the only church that truly feeds the soul day in, day out, is the Church of Baseball. The idea of the Church of Baseball in this monologue came initially from Shelton's evangelical upbringing. He said in an interview with Mel Magazine that it was different back then. It was more forgiving. He also said that he traveled the Carolinas to see if minor league ball had changed when writing the screenplay, and unlike so many other things in his and our lives, it had not. It was this perfect bubble of baseball. The bus trips, the old ballparks, scrounging for the call to move up from high A or whatever league you were in, the will, the struggle to progress. Susan Sarandon as Annie Savoy knocks this out of the park. I really cannot imagine another person reading this opening. This sets a very specific tone, though, and definitely starts a running theme, and that theme is belief. And I'll come back to this throughout, so it's maybe not all that important to talk about it in the macro sense, but we can look at this microcosm of the screenplay and find things here. 
In terms of belief systems, there are seven deities of some type mentioned, uh, animism, two baseball players, and a modern dancer. This is supported by a bed of, of gospel organ. It's incredibly intentional. But she states that, but she states what she didn't get out of religion, and that's important because that's what she's getting for herself through baseball. I make them feel confident, she says, and they make me feel safe and pretty. But she's also putting into this church as well. She helps young ballplayers with some modicum of talent improve. And the part of baseball that is mostly overlooked is the mental part. Yogi Berra, the late and great font of wisdom in baseball, was once credited as saying, Baseball is 90% mental, and the other half is physical. Yogi also is known for these short statements that border on Zen koans. They're called yogiisms, and they have a, a sudden and abrupt way of communicating a lot in a very short period of time. Just as an example, another one that he's credited for is It Ain't Over Till It's Over, which we, as well-adjusted adults listening to this podcast know very well to be true. So in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is that what Annie imparts upon these players, uh, introspection, awareness of their bodies, worldliness, patience, insight, and tips on form and mechanics is what she is putting into this institution. And it, in turn, keeps the institution going and keeps giving her her stable of boys. These are her good works, teaching these players about life and love. But one thing she says in here, there's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career, which is actually a little sad. It's definitely possible to have a very statistically anomalous career in the Carolina leagues, but to never have that again. And I, I'd say that would fuel a wistful memory or two. But that ability to be in the zone or to go into that flow state on demand, ideally when playing baseball as well as when making love, can genuinely elevate the performance of a player. Crash already does this with his internal monologue. He gets right into that zone and he does it in a systematic way that he's built up over the years. But he's also that, that realized philosopher king of a baseball player that just never had the good fortune to get to the show and make it stick. Religion is also, in many ways, anti-sex, and again, she's very sex-positive from a feminist point of view. I may offend some of you now, but I'll go out on a limb and say that a lot of religion is a method of control. Annie prefers metaphysics because, while yes, it is total bullshit, there is less of a despotic tendency in anyone who is also trying to, like, you know, I don't know, uh, harness the subatomic energy of their quantum entangled forms on the moons of Jupiter. There's no... There's no guilt in metaphysics. She claims that there's no guilt in baseball, but I don't, I don't think that's quite true. It's not the same, at the very least. You don't feel guilty in baseball by doing good things, but some religious systems are very anti-feminist and anti-sex, and these are, I would objectively say, good things that, as a modern society, should be embraced. The Church of Baseball also has those very distinct sprints, the baseball season. You're bounded by it. 
you aren't really locked in for life. You can be if you want to be, but you'll have change at the very least every season if you worship this way. Besides, uh, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. What do you believe in then? Well, I believe in the soul. The cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Oh my. Crash. Hey, Annie, what's all this molecule? This is the antimatter of Crash Davis coming right up against Annie Savoy's matter, I guess. That's the only direction I could take with that analogy. But sparks fly. It's clear that Crash is already intrigued by Annie, or he wouldn't have entertained her this far. It's very clear that Annie is into Crash in a real way, but he pulled the ripcord and parachuted out of her house. We also get a tiny bit of Nuke's dumb, goofy charm right there at the end of this clip. That's what she ultimately settles for this season, although she is fully aware that she is taking second place. The speech is performed well. Costner puts this rhythm to it. You really get it with a hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch. It it starts out simply, but it gets more complex, almost like an instrumental solo of some style of music, and you can pick which one you like the best. But he starts out at the top with an, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. And that's just a huge statement. If you go into the speech, you'll find that it is simultaneously confidently male and emotionally intimate you'll get the the soul first like oh wow he's so sensitive and then immediately goes for the cock and the pussy it's a roller coaster the the jfk assassination the designated hitter rule and dietary fiber all make an appearance in this so it's it's really all over the place but it is crash davis in a nutshell i've never read a susan sontag book so i actually have no comment there. Uh, you thought I would, though, right? I, I do not. Just before this, Annie was talking about how relationships are all a matter of quantum physics, molecular attraction, and timing. And disguised in this is a truth. Timing... Oh, Jesus Christ, I'm just hitting microphones left and right. Timing is important. She meant crash davis when he just got brought down to mentor this fucking meathead named ebby calvin lelouch he was interested in what was going to happen between the three of them but as he says when she goes to the door and he's walking away i don't try out he's already had a full career if you want crash davis it is indeed crash davis that you want and this is specifically why he's here in the first place he does not try out Casual or not, it feels like Crash is not willing to suffer, uh, I guess from his perspective, this indignity. Maybe that's 
selling him more arrogant than he is, but he is absolutely at least a little bit arrogant. Annie is still adhering to her very specific relationship structure and has now just begun to question whether or not it's the best for her. Does her belief system need to change again? Does she no longer believe that mentoring young and inexperienced ball players is the path to happiness? She talked about how many religions she's tried in the, in the Church of Baseball monologue, so what's one more at this point? And it's also just a really good screenwriting move, I think. The speech gives Crash some real bona fides with regards to his cerebral nature and his pragmatism. If I had to generalize, I'd say that people everywhere were cheering for Crash for one reason or another after that speech. It's not quite Save the Cat, but more a uh, holy fuck, that was awesome, which leads to other, perhaps deeper feelings. It leaves the audience wanting for more and to really be engaged in the next scene. There's a, a will-they-romance set up at the same time that there is a they-will-romance in this, in this scene, and specifically with this speech. Hey, relax. All right, don't try to strike everybody out. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground balls. It's more democratic. What's this guy know, anyway? If he's so great, how come he's been in the minors for 10 years? If he's so hot, how come Annie wants me instead of him? Oh, hey. And another thing, me. You don't know shit, right? You want to make it to the show, you'll listen to me. Annie only wants you because she can boss you around, got it? So relax, let's have some fun out here. This game's fun, okay? It's fun, goddammit. And oh, don't hold the ball so hard, okay? It's an A. Hold it like an A. <laughs> One thing that I love about this little scene is that it starts with Costner telling the shortstop to cut it. It means to keep the ball from continuing to the catcher as they are the, the cutoff man. That's some real inside baseball right there. And I think it was a shortstop. I'm, I'm seeing it in my mind's eye or whatever. I also love that Nuke is asking for the ball and the crash overrides him. It's the, the subtle sign of true authority. Strikeouts being fascist is one of the funniest lines to me. Fascism, in the sense of being very domineering, takes the other players on Nuke's team out of the game. Fascism is not the word that I would have used for that, but I guess it works. Being more democratic involves having the, the populace play some defense. But I don't think that strikeouts are boring. There may be a level where some strikeouts are boring, but after exceeding a, a certain threshold, strikeouts become the story of the game. How many batters is this guy going to send packing? What's he going to use to mix up their best hitter? Is it, 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 it does boil down to relax, though. That's a real thing, and Annie also mentions that in the Church of Baseball monologue 
relax, and concentrate. But it's not just baseball advice. Annie may very well want Nuke because her system of belief or relationship or interaction with baseball depends on her being the more experienced person in every aspect of the relationship. She knows more about baseball than these guys. Kids, really. Nuke was, was supposed to be 18, but Robbins isn't quite pulling that off, so I don't think it ever really comes up. She knows more about sex than these kids, more about culture, religion, music, and probably everything else. So Crash is probably right, and she's aware that she is into him, but she's also aware that this will be unlike what she has been looking for these past few years. In a way, her system grants her protection from her lovers, and there is a deleted scene that explains more, but I'll get into that a little later on. Also, the the fun, goddammit, and holding the ball like an egg thing at the end, uh, Crash seems like a psychopath, almost. And that that's a tactic that I've seen people around me use to keep others disarmed and on their toes. Just being slightly erratic. Hell, I've, I've used it too. It, it, it works. It really works. Sometimes using that to lighten the mood is what you need. Uh, but don't steal the thing that I stole from a movie, though. Can't have too many people trying to be erratic because then you're just in a level one improv class. And also, yes, you do need soft hands with the baseball. We did do a little bit of a time jump here. The Church of Baseball and I Believe speech were relatively close together, but I don't think this is too far, just the situation's very different. So please understand that I will be jumping around here. Not chronologically they will appear as they appeared chronologically in the movie, but there will be gaps. Again, seeing this movie, which is so worth seeing, would be important to really uh, take the full amount of it away. You could watch this movie after listening to this podcast, and there will be a lot for you there. Hell of a shot. Sorry, it got wasted. Jeez. I don't know what to do with these guys. I beg, I plead, I try to be a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. I, mean, I don't. Huh? They're kids. Scare them. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in the shower! Anybody in the shower in 10 seconds gonna get fined a hundred dollars! Larry! One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi, ten Mississippi. You guys. You lollygag the ball around the infield. You lollygag your way down to first. You lollygag in and out of the dugout. Do you know what that makes you, Larry? Lollygaggers. Lollygaggers. What's our record, Larry? Eight and 16. Eight and 16. How'd we ever win eight? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it? 
we have got a 12-day road trip starting tomorrow. Bus leaves six in the morning. I had to bring some context in with this one. The, the manager of the fucking team, Skip, is, is asking Crash about how to improve his communication with the team. And, and, and Skip is a real even guy, except when he's not, and that just might be a baseball manager thing. <laughs> but our, our philosopher king, Crash Davis, knows what to do. Scare him, he says. And this is one of the funniest scenes in sports movies ever, period, full stop. I think that this might have even been the only truly blocked shot in the whole movie. Uh, Skip and Larry and the other coach, uh, it, it looks like a scene out of Jaws with that deep blocking and deep focus and balance compared to the rest of the movie, which isn't ugly, but again, in Shelton's own words, is minor league looking. The throwing of the bats into the shower is, is the most chaotic thing I've ever seen, and I loved it. Robert Wool's Larry absolutely shines here as the chorus for Skip. Lollygaggers. How they do that back and forth, it's, it's like a game of catch, just about. And a good cop, bad cop routine all at the same time. It's performed at the start of a road trip in an effort to switch the team's gears up for that traveling mode. Crash's observation... They're kids, he says. It, it, it isn't necessarily spot on for the group of actors in question, but it is quite accurate for a ball in the Carolina League, one would think. This also paints us a deeper picture of Crash Davis. He's closer in age to Skip and Larry than he is to Nuke. Indeed, he remembers going yard the last time he faced Larry, who is the pitching coach, but was a pitcher. It furthers... Crash's character's identification as being not a boy of summer, so to speak, but instead a, a, a fully realized man, really. And I think that it, there was some other stuff that I wanted to get into, but I knew I didn't, I wasn't going to have time. But the way that Crash Davis is portrayed here is almost idyllic masculinity and it is he is sensitive yet strong yet confrontational yet fair and all of these things he listens he is decisive yeah he he is some type of ideal and i think that a lot of men may not take that away from this movie not understanding that that might be the way masculinity can be and hey, maybe should be right. There's no guns. There's no violence. Well, there's a little bit of violence, but it's trivial, but no one gets killed. They play baseball and, and sports is used as a way to communicate somebody's masculinity in, in society as, as well as in this movie. So I just wanted to, to point that out because being a father is masculine and and crashes like a father or at least an older sibling to this team in a lot of ways 
and I think it's perfect that Annie Savoy is played by Susan Sarandon, not some uh, 21-year-old, because they match up. She is a, a fully realized woman, and she has been purposefully and intentionally messing around with boys to protect herself as, as armor, as distance, maybe more readily. So, yeah, that's something that I wanted to get into, and I found like a lot of like interesting supporting stuff to it, but it's just it was too much. But I, I couldn't leave it unsaid. So here is the, the, the perfect part. Uh, the perfect opportunity, I should say. How come you don't like me? So you don't respect yourself, which is your problem. But you don't respect the game, and that's my problem. You got a gift. What do I got? You got a gift. When you were a baby, the gods reached down and turned your right arm into a thunderbolt. You got a Hall of Fame arm, but you're pissing it away. I ain't pissing nothing away. I got a Porsche already. I got a 911 with a quadraphonic blaupunk. Christ, you don't need a quadraphonic blaupunk. What you need is a curveball, huh? In the show, everybody can hit a fastball. Well, how would you know? You've been in the majors? <sighs> yeah, I've been in the majors. Okay, so the line, I got a, I got a Porsche with a quadraphonic blaupunk is legitimately one of my favorite lines in this movie as well. For those who may not know, because the year is 2022, Blaupunkt, which is blue dot in German, basically created the car stereo in 1932. I say basically because I don't know the specifics, and uh, to be fair, frankly, my dear listener, I do not give a damn. But they've done over 100 million car stereos and obviously had products in the premium packages on certain vehicles, uh, Porsche, right? Because it's pronounced Porsche being one of them. At this point in time, it looks like they're mostly a licensing gig for the name. The sole product on their site right now is an e-bike, which is fine, but it's not car stereos. But this solidifies Crash's position as the sage for the team, the father figure. He's been in the show. Again, the bus stuff was the first stuff filmed on the movie, so having the actors know these characters so well is just really powerful and really interesting. Really good stuff. This is the start of Nuke opening up his mind by not relying on his strengths, but learning to expand. You cannot just throw fastballs at Major League batters, and, and you can't just show up and expect to start hitting off major league pitchers. It's not uncommon for players that get called up to have a tough time and get sent right back down. Crash might have been that guy, or, you know, if Crash was an exceptional hitter, he, uh, he might have just been there to fill in for another player during their time on the disabled list, or to potentially pressure contract negotiations or trades or what have you. He was there for 21 days. Most players won't ever see a second of the major leagues, and most players won't ever see a second of the major leagues that isn't from the stands or on TV. This is also another time where Nuke thinks that because he can talk the talk, he can walk the walk. Crash would have kicked the ever-loving shit out of him had the fight not been stopped, but, but they are also like brothers on this team. Brothers fight like that. I've known brothers that fight worse, but at the end of the, of the day, if no one is 
permanently injured. It's just water under the bridge. The religious aspect also comes back with the the ballparks being like cathedrals, huge and powerful. Cathedrals, for those not familiar with the organization of Catholicism, is where a bishop resides because Catholicism, but these are among the grandest works of masonry and, and stained glass that we've seen throughout history. They are intimidating, impressive, enormous. When I think of them, I think of like the, the Gothic look, but some might be even kind of men in black UFO looking ass things like the Rio de Janeiro or Rio de Janeiro, right? Rio de Janeiro Cathedral, which is reported to be 86,000 square feet. I don't know what that is in square meters. I apologize. That's also not the biggest one, just one of the more unique looking ones. But this idea of, of, of grandeur, of worship, is from what I've seen required for some religions, and Catholicism goes pretty hard in the paint. In talking about the majors, Crash also points out the disparity in luxuries, which also translates to the disparity in economic status. These Carolina leaguers aren't making any money at all. Nuke equating his economic superiority as some validation as to his right to be called up makes Crash angry and bitter. But he also brings his audience in with this story of crossing the pearly gates and basically living in heaven, and then brings it right back around to Nuke's lack of dedication. And with that, he brings the whole audience with him, the audience on the bus and the audience in the theater or at home. Now they're all mad at Nuke in a way, in the same way, bitter in a way. Manufacturing peer sentiment, basically. But Crash is mad and bitter, too. He's also showing how much of a jerk he can be, in a way. Right before this clip, he gets on Nuke's case because Nuke doesn't know the words to a song that he's attempting to play poorly on guitar. I don't know the fucking words to that song. I've never heard it before this movie. But yeah, he's doing a piss-poor job, and he gets it all wrong. Crash says something like, I hate people who get the words wrong. That's a flimsy fucking reason to hate someone, my friend. And I used to be that fucking pedant that would call people out, but I've, I've tried to reform. I relapse, absolutely, but I, I've learned that I, too, get the words wrong, and that has helped me understand a lot of other people's point of view. Empathy. Try it out sometime. I guess I, I would have to say that perfect people may lack a certain amount of empathy, or, or they may just be perfect in have that empathy, right? So fuck me. Crash is also mad and bitter because Nuke can't even throw a fucking curveball. And he's so lost, like perdido en el llano, like lost in the ether, that he doesn't realize this. Stumbling through high school and maybe college baseball with just a good fastball and no control. Yeah, I can, I can see Crash being bitter. I'd be bitter. Working your ass off and using your brain every day only to get passed up for assholes like that. I'm sure that's kind of the sentiment where the lyrics accuracy thing comes from. It's not about the lyrics at that point. It's about Crash and Nuke. But one thing that's cool about the busing, they're actually on a bus. As such, they needed to ADR the audio, basically all of it. And it gets a little weird, as you'll hear in a second.
wake up. Huh? You're awake. You're okay. You were dreaming. You're okay. I was playing damn naked. What? I was naked. Playing naked. I know. I know, I have that dream all the time too. We're almost home. Nuke, at one point, after getting fucking rocked on the mound, has a dream where that song that he get that he got wrong is playing and he's he's pitching naked. Well, not naked, but he's wearing his jock strap and and the garters that Annie gave him and a hat. Annie gave him garters to wear, by the way. Again, you you must watch the movie. I am talking about a lot of things. There are a lot of other things. There is a lot. Anyway, he's got uh, Tim Robbins has got baby oil sprayed all over him. It's like 41 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And he's throwing with all these weird motions in the middle of the night. It's horrifying. He wakes up in shock and Crash comes over to see what it is. I don't think I've ever had that uh, kind of show up at school naked dream. But the assumption here is that it has some type of meaning like shame or guilt or insecurity. And these make sense because he got just absolutely savaged on the mound. He's supposed to be some hot shit super prospect. He's got the quadraphonic blah punked. But he just biffed the game like a normal human might. Like a mere mortal, right? Previously on the bus, uh, you know, the gods came down and touched your arm and turned it into a thunderbolt. You know, that kind of thing. No, no. He is taken down. He is mortal. They were on a losing streak, and and, and a streak is both a streak is both the best and the worst thing that a ball player or a ball club could be in. And there's a lot of superstition about the streak. And what ensues, the conversation that ensues, is the most David Lynch shit that I've seen in a non-David Lynch movie. It's a totally normal conversation, but the ADR is so stilted and plain that it's almost inhuman. There is something about the ADR in this specific scene that does not match the performance of the actor on film in a really, really uncanny way. That is exactly the quality of those scenes in the David Lynch movies like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, right? I think those are the two that I'm kind of picking the most up of that vibe off of, again, from my mind's eye. Maybe this is where he got it from. You know, I don't know the timeline of him starting out that, that kind of stilted speech, but who knows? This scene definitely has an aesthetic that is unintentional but recognizable in Lynch's work as being intentional. And David Lynch did live in Durham, North North Carolina, for at least a little bit, according to Wikipedia. I vaguely recall him saying stuff about North Carolina in interview or in print somewhere, so it's quite possible that he saw this movie and he saw this little tiny scene on the bus. And he's like, that is... That is something. And that's so wild to me. That is just so wild. Yeah! I love winning, man. I fucking love winning. You hear what I'm saying? It's like better than losing. 
Teach me something new, man. I, I need to learn. Teach me something. Well, you got something to write with? Good. It's time to work on your interviews. My interviews? What do I got to do? You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. They're your friends. Write this down. We got to play them one day at a time. Got to play. It's pretty boring. Of course know? it's boring. That's the point. Write it down. One day at a time. All right, I'm just happy to be here. Hope I can help the ball club. I know, write it down. I just want to give it my best shot, and the good Lord willing, things will work out. Good Lord willing, things, things will, will work, work out. out. Yep. How's Annie? She's getting pretty steamed, actually, because I'm still rechanneling my sexual energy. I'm figuring I'm just going to cave in and sleep with her, you know, calm her down. Look, are you out of your mind? Well, I'm just are you out of your mind? Just talking about one time. If you give in now, you might start losing. Huh? Never fuck with a winning streak. In the interim, between the two scenes, there's a bunch of movie and story, but like I said, cherry-picking scenes, and I've already picked so fucking many. The cliché scene is really good, because it is Crash and Nuke feeling confident with each other and settling into their roles. This, again, is a bus scene and was the first stuff, and it, it felt a tiny bit to me like Crash was a bit more brusque with Nuke than I would have thought, but it could definitely be that resentment getting to him. When Nuke comes over and says, teach me something, he has reached a, a point of some enlightenment, a level above at least where he was. If I had to pick an Eastern kind of philosophy to hang this movie on, I think I would pick Taoism. Nuke has gone through, and, and again, apologies for all the pronunciation and all the bullshit, and I've, um, I can almost guarantee I'm insulting a religion. I, I'm sorry, but again, one of my stupid theories here. Nuke has gone through learning or Ziran, you know, the naturalness in not always trying for a strikeout. He's learned Wu Wei or effortless action by wearing garters and holding the ball like an egg. The simplicity and spontaneity of the educated lovemaking could be considered poo. Making it in the show relies on two things, Waidan or the external alchemy of being able to do interviews and present yourself as a major league pitcher, a star, and not be a complete fucking weirdo because the public generally doesn't go for that. And Naidan, or the inner alchemy of, of being confident, of staying healthy, and working on yourself. I fully realize that this is probably a disgusting oversimplification and generalization of Taoism, but please just roll with me here. Taoism has a whole thing where they believe that practitioners can reach 
some state of enlightenment or immortality or transformation. Sticking with immortality, when, you, when you're in the show and you make a difference on a winning ball club, you're basically immortal. You know, I still remember that Ken Griffey Jr. was nicknamed the kid, and I have, I think, four Ken Griffey Jr. baseball games. And I remember that he had one of the most beautiful swings in baseball. Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man, played 2,632 games in a row that lasted 16 years. We still talk about Babe Ruth and even make kids' movies that feature him. Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris. These are all gods in the pantheon of baseball in one respect or another. Now, the internal and external alchemies are are actually a little different, so I'm, I'm very much taking my own spin and modernizing them, but to give you an idea, from the text, both uh, internal and external alchemies involved, quote, certain sexual practices, unquote. So I can imagine a bunch of dudes were like, what we need in our religion is a, a, a reason not just to fuck a lot, but to fuck really good. And it's actually proving my point a little bit because this is also an aspect of the movie, this educated and informed lovemaking. According to Wikipedia, Carl Jung also interpreted internal alchemy as being spiritual. And that guy never bullshitted anybody, right? But, but, but it's a whole thing about having spirits in the body to protect the person and then having them help you live forever. The spirit in baseball is, is something else. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say fandom since Many people are ambivalent about it, but maybe fanaticism. I don't call myself a baseball fan, right? Like, I, I like baseball. I know the rules of baseball. I've played plenty of kids' baseball. I've been hit with a baseball in every part of my body. Yeah, even the balls. So, you know, I'm not even counting that it was with a cup. I just got raw-dogged with a ball in the balls. It, this is a... a, a comes from a pointless story about a friend of mine wanting to demo his new curveball after school. Anyway, I know how to keep score on paper. I know the lingo, you know, allowing for years because it's been years since I've, I've been in it. So maybe there's new lingo, right? But I don't consider myself an actual fan. This might be a bit Dunning-Kruger of me, but, but I know real fans. It's, it's something else. It's something more. And we're definitely going to address the streak thing and the anything and a couple of things in this immediate follow-up scene. So this is now your context that we're going to jump into something kind of almost like really soon after. How dare you tell me to stay out of my bed? You are messing with my private life. Knock, knock, you know, come in. You're confusing him. Where's like, thank him. you. You're confusing him. You're bending his mind all out of shape. What? You're confusing him. You're confusing him? You got him breathing out of the wrong goddamn eyelid. You got him parading around the locker room like a fruit. That is a religious ritual, and it happens to be working, if you don't mind my wait, saying. Wait, 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 wait. Who dresses you? What? Who dresses you? I mean, do you think this is a little excessive for the Carolina League? The road of excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom, William Blake. But William Blake? William Blake. What, William Blake? William Blake! What do you mean, William Blake? I mean, William Blake! Who are you? I mean, do you, do you have a job? I teach part-time at Alamance Junior College. English 101 and beginning composition. 
You know, having a conversation with you is like a, is, is, is like a Martian talking to a fungo. Oh, cute. That's really, you know, just because sometimes you manage to be clever and you have a nice smile does not mean you are not full of shit. But I'm full of shit. You're full I'm of full shit. I'm full of shit. You are full of shit. chastity was your idea. I know. I'm telling you. I just keep your hands out. I never told him to stay out of your bed. You most certainly did. I never told him to stay out of your bed. I told him that a player on a streak has to respect the streak. Fine. You know why? Because they don't, they don't happen very often. Why? If you believe you're playing well because you're getting laid, or because you're not getting laid, or because you wear women's underwear, then you are. And you should know that. The William Blake scene is a, a really great little traditional rom-com, I hate you, I love you kind of scene. Crash and Annie interact directly for the first time in a while, and it's the Waves of a violent sea crashing against the jagged cliffs of an unwelcoming shore, I guess. Annie shows up at a cool 100 and and Crash meets her there. And the interesting thing here is that they don't get together right here. That's atypical of a rom-com trope that we've come to as a society acknowledge. And I call it a trope because our impression of it is probably more common than the actual occurrences, but it is what we expect. To follow up from the previous, Annie at one point asked, uh, or told, I should say, Nuke to redirect his sexual energies into the game so he didn't have sex with her, and then he won. He played well, whatever. So now he's been steady not having sex with her for a while. And Crash knows this, but... She's almost gaslighting herself here in, in not accepting that Crash is every bit as powerful as she is with regards to Nuke. Not only that, but, you know, he's done the, the classic improv bit of yes and to ensure that the team stays on the streak and out of Annie's bed, which maybe was a, an intentional byproduct or just a byproduct of winning or maybe just his only goal. It's it's unclear. I've seen takes that unequivocally say that he did so intentionally, and I, I wouldn't put it past him, but sometimes the, the mechanics of celestial bodies just have their orbits decay into that common gravity well, right? Crash was, was doing his job, and, and he proves it. They're on a streak. They're winning. When he says to her, if you believe that you're playing well because you're getting laid or because you're not getting laid or because you're wearing women's underwear, then you are. And you should know this. These are all things that Annie has proposed to Nuke in order to get him to play better, and he has. He's grown a lot as a player, I would imagine as a lover and all these things, in this this time period. Crash informs her, or Crash doesn't directly inform her, but Crash's actions inform Annie in a real way, in a pragmatic way, that he exists in her world of myth and mysticism and fully lives there, just fully inhabits it. But what what she doesn't understand is that he has lived there for a long time. He just called it, you know, the minor leagues. He called it baseball. She is insightful, though. She offers herself to him, and he declines which is, again, the atypical twist, and it, and it leads her to believe that he's scared, and he is. And that's a tough one. Is it that he'll, he'll mess up the system? 
her system, her process? Is it that he'll mess up Nuke? That they won't be the that have that brother, that mentor, that father son relationship? Is it that he's still a ball player at heart and doesn't have much of a way to settle down and lead a life? He could be called up, sent down, or traded at any second. He realizes that she's something different and special, but he also realizes that he's not feeling confident in his ability to fulfill his part of the relationship. He also doesn't, you know, like, really, the relationship with Nuke is why he's there. He doesn't want to torpedo that, and it's more than just a normal professional relationship. The team in, in its entirety feels together. The team is playing well, firing on all cylinders, the, the, the way only a baseball team can. And you never, ever fuck with a streak. We also learn a lot about Annie as a normal person, not a, a priestess of baseball, in a really short period of time in this scene. She comes back from a cutdown with, with a quote by William Blake. That's her armor. She teaches part-time at Alamance Junior College, English 101 and beginning composition, which was just a great line delivery that she, she did. I, I, I did like an homage to it. I'm fucking garbage. I know. Don't worry about it. You don't have to tell me. Fully aware. And I'd love a world where an adjunct could make enough money to live on that, but it only exists in the movies. Um, but that decaying orbit again brings her out of the, the magic and religion bullshit into the pragmatism of the real world, which is different than Crash Davis's real world. She also realizes she doesn't want to push over boy toy anymore. That's a major change for her. This, this system, this religion that she's put together for herself, however successful it seems to have been, and by rights, it, it seems to have been very successful, but it isn't what she wants anymore. It's not giving her what she's looking for. That changed at some point in time, and perhaps it was when she first met Crash and discovered that ball players could be humans with insights and opinions and a modicum of intellect. William Blake is also a great selection for this movie. Dude was out there, really radical in a tubular way. And you can get caught up just reading about his life on Wikipedia, but the, the specific section, Development of Views, holds the key, I believe, to why William Blake. The first sentence of this section is, Because Blake's later poetry contains a private mythology with complex symbolism, his later work has been published less than his earlier work. Now, to be clear, a lot of his art was horny as hell. And his poetry, I've heard, has been described as being erotic in nature. This collection of prophetic works, however, the, the, the religious system that he created, is said to illustrate the tensions between the ideas of the body versus the morals and structures of society. At least at a surface level, but I, you know what I think is very clear, my very surface analogy, is this guy fucked. This is, however, where that deleted scene I mentioned was cut out of the film, and with good reason. Ron Shelton in the Criterion Collection Extra Features tells us that it hurt to cut this big, 
several-page monologue for Annie out of the movie, but he also tells us why he had to do it. The scene in question immediately follows this and is crashed into Annie at a bar. Annie, here, explains how she got into the, the priestess of baseball gig, right? It involved the death of her father in Florida, which I assume to be Tampa, and her being so destroyed by the loss of her father that she just wanders out of the funeral service and uh, comes across Yankee spring training. The idea that she crafts this religious system to fill the void left by the death of her father is compelling and perhaps characteristic of all religion. Not that it's the death of the father, since religion has existed well before Christianity, but more so that as humans, that void can exist in the presence of loss in the family and social spaces, right? People you may recall prior to like sanitation and antibiotics were dropping like flies. So it stands to reason that, you know, by my sophomoric logic, right? My dumbass little uh, hamster wheel brain, that it was more back then as, as a feeling of, of belonging and, and social support. That doesn't mean it doesn't still happen like that now or that someone can't just choose for themselves, but it is a thing. And, and this is my thing, to be clear. Shelton doesn't talk about religion like an asshole while explaining this. I'm, I'm the one that inserted all that assholeriness in there. But I digress. The reason it was cut out is because the movie tested horribly with it in there. It was such an intimate revelation, Shelton suspects, or posits or hypothesizes, right? That when they had sex for like 15 minutes towards the end of the movie, it was a nothing. It, an anticlimax. A real, just BS, like, culmination of the movie. They, they had nowhere to go after being so intimate with one another with words, not with the cock and the pussy. And I think that's real. I think that, like, people, humans in our society will have sex like a bunch before sharing the inner workings of their identity with their partner. Seriously. And that's just a really interesting and insightful observation. On paper, you wouldn't think much of it. And in fact, Shelton thought nothing of it as he wrote it in the script. But in sitting down and looking at the testing information, wherein people probably said they didn't like the ending, he tracked it back to there. Also, and I'll, I'll point this out, an alien talking to a fungo is another great line because a fungo is just the dumbest name for a bat but is a specific type of bat that's used for fielding practice, and it looks hilarious. I don't think I knew anyone who owned a fungo, and apparently fungos are, are is, the word is also used for the people that, like, throw fly balls and, and warm up the outfielders. If Crash uses the term to reference the person, then that feels kind of shitty, uh, but in my head it's always been the, the weird-looking, long, skinny bat. Up to the plate, Junior Shockley. What's wrong? I'm a little nervous. My old man's here. Your dad's here? Where's he at? He's right by the home plate. Don't look. Don't look. Look, he's waving. Hey, he's just your old man. He's as full of shit as anybody. Hey, what's going on? I'm breathing through the wrong fucking eyelid again, dude. Shut up. Hey, did you guys hear about Jimmy and Millie? Yeah. They got engaged. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah? Well, wait till I tell him she's gone down on half the Carolina League. Hey, 
Anybody says anything bad about Millie, I break his neck. Excuse me. You guys, I got a game to pitch here. Hey, you guys, don't throw me anything. My girlfriend put a curse on my glove. I'll take the hex off the fucking glove. Give me the glove. Well, then you got to cut the head off a live rooster. What the hell's going on out there? Looks like a convention. Pretty soon they're going to call the roll. <laughs> Get your ass out there and check it out. Excuse me, what the hell's going on out here? Well, Nuke's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove, and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Is that about right? That's right. We're yeah. dealing with a lot of shit. Well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift, and uh, maybe you can find out where she's registered, maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pattern. Okay, let's get to it. Here we go. The meeting at the mound, the meeting on the mound, the conversation on the rock, if you're an X-Files fan, this is quite possibly the most iconic scene of the movie. A lot happens here, but the main goal was to illustrate how, at those meetings on the mound, they're almost never talking about baseball. Robert Wool is so great in this, and and it turns out he ad-libbed the candlesticks part, which is probably the best line. This scene might be the most indicative of what this movie is as a whole. It's got baseball in it, but... Almost the entirety of what is discussed on the mound is about interpersonal relationships. This is the, the micro view of the macro movie, if that makes sense. Millie and Jimmy are getting married. Nuke's dad is here. Jose's girlfriend put a curse on his glove. It's a whole thing. We've been watching a, a sports movie or a, or a baseball movie, but in, in point of fact, this whole movie is about interpersonal relationships. It's dressed up so dudes will watch it. It's deeply infused with a lot of literary references and with flowery speeches, but I'll be goddamned if this just isn't a movie about normal people doing normal people shit. Shelton also mentions that he took inspiration for Millie and Jimmy from a real-life couple that he knew. The cynical take is that, you know, that lasted all of five minutes. But from what Shelton has said, the Millie and Jimmy he, he knew, or he knows, right, are one of the only couples still together 30 years later. So good for them. And, uh, you know, maybe we should kind of change the way that we think about women and, and being sex positive. Just saying. This scene also almost didn't make the cut. The studio said that it was a nothing scene that... It didn't progress the movie, but on an objective level, I disagree. Crash and Nuke are closer than ever in the scene, and he's trying to get Nuke to, to just play and not worry about his dad being there. And this is a portrait of the team in action, but Shelton felt that it was an honest portrait of minor league baseball. More importantly, however, was that test screenings Always, always, always had this as the favorite scene. You can't cut what the people want, you know? Uh, Robert Wool also almost wasn't in the movie, but 
he's got talent. We've talked about him his, we've, in his first film appearance in 1980s Hollywood Nights, but he had an 80-episode show called Arliss, which was a sports agent show before there were sports agent shows, to my knowledge. He was also a writer on Police Squad in 1982, which is really great. One of my favorite things he did, actually, was a documentary in production, maybe closer to an educational stand-up, in a way, called Assume the Position with Mr. Wool. And I thought that was just really great. I think I saw it super late one night, and I was like, wow, this guy from Hollywood Nights kind of slaps. And he goes over misconceptions of American history. If you've seen John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons, it felt like it was inspired by Robert Wool's film. I liked both. Maybe I just like learning things. But Robert Wool is that background actor I said I wouldn't get into, but I am 100% doing that. So here's a, a Robert Wool supercut where you get to see the energy and the ad-libbing potential he brought to this movie. He's 100% texture in this picture, and it's wonderful. Or maybe not. Maybe I got tired of working on this and never got around to making the supercut. We'll see. And also, I'll, I'll take the time now to point out uh, Jose. Jose was played by Robert Marzan of uh, ambiguous ethnic origins, but his, you know, una brujeria, like, it was, it was fine. Uh, he sounded like maybe he was Puerto Rican and... His whole thing is that he does have the chicken bone cross and stuff like that. And it's another way of looking at belief in, in this movie and religious systems and things like that. And it's interesting because they do shortchange him as just voodoo. But then, you know, there's the guy who's like, oh, touch my bat. He's so desperate, you know, for touch my bat. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I'm so dry, you know. I'm over 16 some type of shit. And Jose tells him that that's not belief, man. That's desperation. Like this is the most reasonable take on this kind of Hispanic voodoo, uh, baseball player I've seen ever in my life. And then crash comes by confident as hell and just, you know, taps the bat and hits him with the cross, you know? And again, that is crashes understanding that is crashes realization that is crashes wisdom. Ultimately, he knows what streaks are about. He knows what playing well is about. If the ritual is touch the bat with a chicken bone cross, you touch the bat with a chicken bone cross. It's not about desperation. It's about belief, right? You got to believe the heart. It's all in the heart. He says, I don't believe in, in metaphysics when it comes to matters of the heart. But he does believe in some things when it comes to matters of the heart. Because ultimately, I think baseball is the sport with a lot of heart, ultimately, you know? They never play him as, like, a joke or, like, a thing like that. Like, they don't laugh at him, but more the situational of being in that. So it's a different approach than Major League. Major League is, is much more of a surface, crude kind of take on that. So in case you were wondering, yeah, I had feelings and opinions. Uh, they're just different. And I'll say that, you know what? A lot of the warnings for Major League are not exempt totally for this movie because it also is an 80s movie, but it's not a dumb 80s comedy. It's a smart 80s sports movie or movie, as I just kind of pointed out. It's just about people. People being people, everybody wants to be part of the miracle. 
and uh, it really approaches everything differently, even the uh, homosexuality, homophobia, that kind of thing. And that's something that I'll talk about maybe a tiny, tiny bit at the end because that's one of those things that I really wanted to to dive into and uh, I was not not equipped with the amount of time. This podcast is already way too long and I suck at speaking, so I have to edit a lot. So my apologies. But let's uh, let's jump on to the next one. I'm trying to thank you. Come on, let's get out of this dump. I'll buy you a beer. Hey, you calling my place a dump? No, he's not. Huh? No, he's not. He's not, are you? No. He's not. Right. Nuke, you know who this is? This is Sandy Grimes. Sandy Grimes hit 371 in Louisville in 1966. 376. I'm sorry. He hit 376. That's a career, man. In any league. You got that right. Did you hear what I said? I mean, I'm, I'm going to the show. You know what the difference between hitting 250 and 300 is? It's 25 hits. 25 hits and 500 at-bats is 50 points, okay? There's six months in a season. That's about 25 weeks. That means if you get just one extra flare a week, just one, a gork, you get a, a ground ball, you get a, you get a ground ball with eyes, you get a dying quail, just one more dying quail a week, and you're in Yankee Stadium. You still, you, you still don't know what I'm talking about, do you? The Sandy the Grimes scene or the ground ball thighs scene is when the reality of the minor leagues comes a calling. Crash's ambivalence to the news of Nuke getting called up is, is not ambivalence at all. It's bitterness. Uh, it's bitterness at his fate, at the fate of players like Sandy Grimes. Bitterness at the fact that the stats don't even play an objective role. It's, it's almost luck of the draw. It's about being a player that someone needs and that someone remembers exists. Sandy Grimes hitting 376 is great. But the way that Crash breaks down the math, one hit a week. It doesn't matter what kind of hit. It could have been as trivial as the aforementioned ground ball with eyes, which is a ground ball that just takes a wild bounce at the last second. And that's the difference between being somebody and being nobody. Just one of those a week. You don't need a home run a week. Just a hit. One more a week. That's 50 points. Crash has this context. Crash had this context for a long time. It's been living in his head, and if I had to guess, it's been living in his head since he got sent back down from the show. We don't have any record of what Crash Davis's 21 days were like, but I can't imagine that he wowed too many people. Or it's quite possible that he did great but got sent down because the team picked up a star who maybe had one more dying quail every two weeks in the show than Crash did, or, or not, but was marketable versus a relative unknown. The lingo used, a gork, a ground ball, a ground ball with eyes, a dying quail, great stuff. Nuke, coming in excited though is a natural thing. But I think the impression that, that I get is that most guys don't do that. Like in Major League, when in, in the training camp, when Jake Ta- Taylor tells the players to refrain from celebrating that they didn't get cut. Same vibe, right? Sometimes players just leave in the night. 
but Nuke has has not yet fully understood the culture. He's improved and he's grown so much, but he still has a lot to learn. But I think he did understand his his relationship with Crash. Crash wasn't having a great handle on Nuke leaving, and he knew it was coming. Nuke was getting better, and the Bulls were, again, just firing on all cylinders. Good things always come to an end. And when you go to the show, you don't rub it in people's faces, even if they should be happy for you. You probably just leave. The empty locker is message enough. If you're going to get called up, I'm sure the entire team will have known by now you work, you, you, they would have known because you would have been playing well. If you're going to get cut, likely the same. Crash later tells Nuke that he's been known on occasion to howl at the moon. He asks Nuke if Nuke understands and Nuke answers in the negative. Huge mood. I'd heard the idiom, but I, I thought it was about being horny based on a song that I liked. According to the Free Dictionary, it can mean to waste one's time and energy trying to do something which is impossible or trying to get something which you cannot have. And that seems medium appropriate. Crash wants to be in Nuke's place. He's had a taste of the majors and he's definitely got a major league mind, but he's in an old body. And like by old, he's probably 34 or whatever. I feel like that's totally relatable at my age, but unfathomable at Nuke's age. And yeah, maybe, maybe that song is about being horny now that I think about it. So I, I got that one on context, I guess. But, but we'd love to view sports as a pure meritocracy, but that's not accurate. It's an entire matrix of skill, opportunity, visibility, and chance. And I, I wish the best to those who make it, and I hope for the best to those who don't. But that's, that isn't even remotely a value judgment on them. There are so many mechanisms in play that might determine who is a utility infielder or a pinch hitter versus who is a starter, and then furthermore, who is a star. I wouldn't be surprised of the existence of several minor league stories of people immortalized in the pantheon of Major League Baseball just getting fucking owned or, or some dumb shit. And, you know, I, I fully realize this might take away from the weight and the implication, but again, uh, watching the movie will get you further than this podcast will if you just want to experience the thing top to bottom. But the, the scene starts out with that Stevie Ray Vaughan back there, you know, playing that, that, that guitar, and I, I like it. I do like it. I just wanted to point it out because I was like, ah, yes, that's the scene. Yeah, I think this is one of the saddest points because they are separating. Their relationship is ending. And there's no real way to continue it. You know, they had some good times, and... Yeah, that's that's Crash's vibe right now. He's just getting drunk as hell playing pool with Sandy Grimes and Sandy Grimes' bar. Or pool hall, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how fucking things work in Durham. But yeah, this is the saddest part of the movie for me, I think. And there's some other stuff that happens real soon after, so 
Yeah. There are a million and one things I left out. One that I really wanted to get into, but could not find the time was Bull Durham the Musical. Yes, that happened. I can't find much but a rehearsal recording of one song, unfortunately. But, uh, but I'm eager to hear or see this. If you have a way to get me more of this musical, please hit me up uh, at CoolMarkD on Twitter. The other thing that I liked was an academic essay called Cursed with Self-Awareness, Genderbending, Subversion, and Irony by Suzanne M. Doughton, which at the time of publication was of the Department of Speech Communication, Southern Illinois University. This essay gives voice with like a lot of added academic weight and a lot more specificity to, to what I felt that this movie achieved, but I couldn't really quite put my finger on. And yeah, it's, it's a bit of a spoiler, the title, but it is indeed gender bending subversion and irony. And I hope at some point they'll upgrade to get, I did 100% leave out the finale of the movie. Full many a flowers born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. There's a quote from Thomas Gray, and I'm not even going to get into it, but it's actually a thesis of this movie and of life in a big, big way. This isn't even like ipso ex post facto rhetorical analysis. It's, it's just text. It's there. It's from the poem Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, which is not updated for our times. But if you're interested, I recommend it. For further spoilers, the previous line to this quote are, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark and fathomed caves of oceans bare. The whole point of this movie, in many ways, in so many ways, is that the beautiful and the extraordinary can be overlooked, that it can exist in your backyard. And that, that's a vibe that I get. I don't, I don't have a huge friend circle, but each and every one of the people I consider friends have something about them. They have this amazing aspect to them that they may not even fully realize or understand because it is entirely mundane to them. But I see it and it, it dazzles me. The world may not see it. I am the darkness of the ocean cave in many of these instances. I am the desert air. But it makes me better. It makes me sweeter, even. It makes me more beautiful. And I await the day when those gems or flowers might be discovered in me so that I may pass that on. But beauty in life does not need to be idolized or put on a pedestal or, God forbid, get 5,000 likes or whatever the fuck. It can and does simply exist on so many occasions and in so many places. These are normal people living normal lives. Crash isn't going to the Hall of Fame of the minor leagues. Because that isn't even a fucking thing, as far as anyone is aware of. But he is one of the most intelligent and giving and caring players to have played the game. The Sandy Grimes scene reiterates that, but with a spin that 
that crashes in Nuke's place as a minor leaguer in the presence of someone being called up to the show in the presence of greatness. But that doesn't matter. What, what Sandy Grimes did was beautiful. That no one told tale about it was criminal, but it didn't detract from the act. If they can't detract from the act, it is a fact. There is no asterisk on Sandy Grimes's record, nor on Crash Davis's. They played the game, and they achieved. It may have been an obscurity, a tree fucking falling in a forest, but the recognition, or lack thereof, did not change the reality of it. And that's beautiful. And it's sad, and it's haunting, but most importantly, it's beautiful. Listen, if you want the full story, go ahead and watch the movie. Again, I really genuinely think this is one of the great movies that I've talked about in this podcast. But that's it for this one. It's, uh, it's the bottom of the 10th at this point. I'm in extra innings and fading fast. Time will tell when the next one comes out, but I promise it won't be a baseball movie. Perhaps I'll finally take a jaunt into my top three rom-coms. Perhaps people can dig that. As always, I am Mark D. Stay safe and be nice.